Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope that you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. We have a very full slate today, so let's get right at it. Later, Rebecca Silver Slater swings by to talk about her new novel, The Second History. It's a post-apocalyptic love story about a young couple embarking on a journey to understand, for the first time, what they've been hiding from all their lives. Fascinating conversation, you do not want to miss that. Then, English actress, filmmaker, and former pop star Billy Piper joins me via Zoom from London to talk about her challenging new movie, Rare Beasts. But first, let's meet New York Times best-selling author Joy Fielding, author of 29 novels, including acclaimed books like Someone is Watching, Now You See Her, and Still Life. In her most recent psychological thriller, Cul-de-Sac, a shooting lays bare the secrets harbored by five families in a sleepy suburban cul-de-sac. Let's get to know Joy Fielding. Congratulations on Cul-de-Sac. It's your 29th novel. That is astounding. I know. It's kind of hard to believe. (laughs) When you were writing the first one, could you ever have imagined that 28 books later, you'd be sitting here waiting for this one to come out? Well, you know, I'm not sure I I was thinking that far ahead. (laughs) So I was uh, just so thrilled to have that first book, you know, published that uh, I I just always assumed I would be writing. I'm not sure I even thought I'd live this long. So (laughs) it's kind of nice. (laughs) Now, when you were working uh, on the first one, was it was the first book that came out the first book that you had written? No, actually, boy, we're going back a long mm-hmm. time. I, I really have to remember all this. <laughs> uh, no, I had written, I believe, one full book before when I was living in Los Angeles and trying to be an actress and nothing was going well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was working in a lot of banks and uh, being, you know, a, a very good teller. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I, was kind of unhappy, but I, I knew I was I always liked writing. And so I started writing a novel, a, a, a fiction, uh, but it was kind of about me and, and how I was feeling. I don't, as I recall, it didn't have a huge plot. I, I really don't remember it all. But uh, I wrote a book and I actually sent it to a literary agent and in LA. And I remember he said to me, um, this book is not going to sell. It's not ready. But one day you're going to make a million dollars, which at the time was a huge <laughs> amount of money. Absolutely. Now Still is. So much. Well, you know, times <laughs> have changed. Uh, but he, um, so I, I just kind of felt, okay, it was, it was a certain amount of validation. And, mm. uh, and then when I left LA and moved back to Toronto, um, I started, you know, actually, my mother had written me a letter saying, come home, you're losing your spark. You you uh, you should be writing. You're such a good writer. And uh, so I came home and and I started writing and I wrote a couple of television scripts, which sold uh, to the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Mm -hmm. And then I 
decided I was going to write a book and sat down at my parents' kitchen table. It was like, you know, and this is like a little kitchen <laughs> <laughs> with this table that took up virtually the whole room. And I sort of plopped myself down in really the busiest room in the house mm -hmm. and, and wrote my novel, uh, with, you know, surrounded, you know, my mother making dinner and cleaning up and doing all this stuff. So um, it it she was, I mean, they were, my whole family really was pretty remarkable because they just let me do it. You know, they, they didn't ask me to go get a job. They didn't ask me, you know, to, to move somewhere else, you know, or like find another place to write, you know, it was do what, you know, whatever you want, darling, you know, that's, that's good. Well, you talk about living in Los Angeles and trying to make it as an actor. Uh, you still use, I think, some of that training. When you're creating characters, you say that you use the same kind of muscles that a method actor would use uh, right. just to try and get into the head of the characters. Can you tell me a little bit about how that works? Yeah, I think that my... Well, I was never really trained as an actress, but I did a lot and I learned a lot and I and I certainly employed... Um, I don't know if I would describe myself as a method actress, but I certainly <laughs> used all those techniques. Uh, and um, so I know, and I, and I was an English major too, you know, mm -hmm. university. So I, I, I knew drama. I know what makes drama. I know, you know, the essence of drama is conflict. And, uh, you know, you, so you always have to have one character kind of trying to achieve something and something, some obstacles in their path to achieving that. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and I have a very good ear for dialogue. I always have. I, I don't have a particularly good eye. I don't notice anything. I mean, I really don't notice anything. <laughs> And uh, my sister makes fun of me because we go for walks around, you know, and during COVID, we've been going for these daily, you know, monster walks, mm. largely in the same area. And I never know where we are because <laughs> I, I just don't see anything. And, uh, you know, so the same thing, I can go into a room and, not, and, and spend hours in that room and not be able to tell you one thing about it when I walk out. But I will remember everything that everybody says and i will remember the way they say it you're listening to my interview with best-selling author joy fielding her new novel cul-de-sac is available wherever you buy fine books so when i'm trying to create a character getting back kind of to your to your mm -hmm. original question um i i do uh you know with a with method acting it's not so much you becoming the character it's making the character you infusing the character with as much of you as you can that makes the the character you're you're portraying believable mm -hmm. so that's what i do with um with especially my protagonists i i try and think okay what would i do in this situation how would i react if somebody were speaking to me this way what, and of course they're usually much more clever than i would be at the time <laughs> but uh they're you know, so I use as much of me as possible. Or again, I use bits and pieces of my family, my friends, not never a whole, or rarely, a whole, I, very, very rarely is any character in, in something I'm writing based solely on somebody I know or myself or my mm -hmm. daughter, because God knows I've used my older daughter, <laughs> you know, all the time. <laughs> but uh, she, you know, but again, not, not they're not 
they are not that person. I just use little bits and okay, what would what would my daughter say to this? Well, she's a lot tougher than I am, so she would have that zinger ready, you know. But um, I that you know, I use what you can, and I I I do think that uh, I know what makes the scene dramatic. You know, and I think that's from acting in all the plays I acted in and, and you know, the television shows that I did. I, I know uh, how to move a scene. Well, you talk about creating conflict. You talk about uh, the, the way that you create these characters. And then in cul-de-sac, there are so many characters. There's five <laughs> families here. I thought to myself, what am I doing? Well, I wondered that too. Uh, so tell me about taking on a, a, a project of that scope. I know this was written in and around the pandemic. And at the beginning of the pandemic, you were finding like a lot of people finding it hard to become motivated to work or to write or create something. And then all of a sudden, the story starts pouring out of you. But there are so many elements to it uh, that uh, it must have been... Was it well? I guess the question is: Was it way more complicated than any of your other books, or are they just words on a page and you figure out the structure and away you go? Yeah, you know what? This book was actually written before the pandemic, mm. so it's the book that I'm actually on the last chapter of right now that I've been writing during the pandemic. Uh, and and you're right. I for almost a year I couldn't do a thing. I mean, I couldn't write. I couldn't read. I was just in a constant state of anxiety. And and uh, it, you know, I watched a lot of TV as yeah. I'm sure, and went for these walks with my sister, uh, but um, where and I saw nothing. But um, the cul-de-sac in some ways was harder, in some ways was much easier. Uh, it, it's uh, when I decided to tell the, because for years I'd sort of had this idea in the back of my head that I wanted to write a story about, a, you know, kind of a shooting uh, where you didn't know either the victim or the perpetrator, uh, but you just knew that this shooting had taken place. And I thought, okay, you know, we have a place in Florida and uh, where we, you know, we spend a few months a year. And um, I thought, you know, they have, a, well, in Toronto as well, they have all these little cul-de-sacs. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought, well, that would be kind of an interesting setting. You do like, and the symbolism, of course, of a dead end street and um, just this little neighborhood. Well, you can't have like one or two houses on a <laughs> cul-de-sac. You have to have, a, you know, five anyway. Mm -hmm. So, um, I thought, okay, I'll do fine. And I, and I needed enough people where there was going to be some doubt you, where, where you leave the reader questioning, well, who among these people is right. the victim and who is the one who pulls the trigger? So, um, so I have these five families and then, yes, then I thought, gee, that's a lot of people. I'm, I'm <laughs> jumping here. Uh, and I have to make them all interesting i have to make sure that i alternate you know the chapters the points of view and i also have to make sure that they're all equally interesting so that when you leave one family and you go to another you're not thinking oh shoot you know i this hmm. is just you know who cares right. i want to yeah. get back to this one so i have to make all the families interesting and i have to give them all their own sets of problems where not such 
huge issues that you think, God, this whole, you know, it's like one big nut house this neighborhood, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you, you don't want that. I mean, and I think the thing with these people is that they do feel like you feel they're just an ordinary neighborhood. We're midway through my conversation with the New York Times best-selling author, Joy Fielding. Her new book, Cul-de-Sac, is in bookstores right now. It's a thriller, it's a psychological thriller, and it's great. When we left the conversation, Joy Fielding was describing how she juggled five families worth of characters in this thriller. Everyone has a secret, she says, that makes them interesting. What was it then that made them different? Here's what she had to say. What is different in Florida and in a lot of the U.S., unlike Canada, uh, is that everybody has access to guns. So that's what I want. You know, in Florida, they walk around with them, you know, quite openly. They walk around. I've seen men walk around with a, what are they called, Mm AK-47 assault weapons over their shoulders. So... And this is not normal, but it is in Florida. So um, I I wanted to kind of talk about the gun culture. I I wanted to 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 just address this in in an again an entertaining in an mm-hmm. entertaining way because my job is not to lecture. My job is not to um you know to do a serious essay on all this i'm i'm writing a story to entertain you and um and so that's my my main objective writing it in fact uh it was i would say in some ways it's easier to do a multi-person point of view because you have the room to move around to tell different stories i mean really i could have written five completely separate books here instead you know if i wanted to yeah. just concentrate on any one of these stories and just enlarge them uh expand on them i could have done that but um so i i loved writing cul-de-sac it was it was really fun for me um there were lots of surprises along the way and it gave me um an opportunity you know i don't generally like doing research it feels too much like school. So um, I, but I enjoyed, in fact, I learned a lot about the gun culture in the U.S. and uh, about, you know, just the sheer volume of guns there are and all that. So I I use, whenever I have to do a lot of research, I make sure I get it all in the book. <laughs> so that's what I did. <laughs> now, when you're juggling that many characters, do you look to other books? I mean, when I was reading Cul-de-Sac, I, I thought of Agatha Christie, and I know it's, it's such an obvious kind of thing, but she would often have many, many characters, and they would all have some sort of backstory. You would become invested in them all uh, at some point. Is someone like that an influence on this work? Actually, not at all. Uh, I, I never even thought of Agatha Christie. <laughs> uh, I, I think the difference with Agatha Christie, not not to say anything negative, is that mm-hmm. the books are fairly shallow. They are much more plot driven than character driven. Right. And the with her books, and I've read many of them a long time ago, uh, were that really the villain or the perpetrator could have been anyone. 
she makes it and Mary Higgins Clark did the same sort of thing. She basically, and she was a lovely woman, incidentally. I met yeah. her a number of times. Well. But uh she, they would create characters where basically any one of them could be guilty. Uh, because she gave you enough that you thought, okay, could, so that at the end when the perpetrator is revealed, you think, oh yes, well, that's the one. But it, in fact, it could have been anybody. Right. I, I think the difference with my book, um, again, is that they are all character driven. Everything that happens, all the plot, everything that occurs in the book happens because of who these characters are. Hmm. So, uh, and, and the way they handle things. And, and again, who they were as children, what their upbringing was, who they are dictates uh, what they do, not the other way around. The, the plot does not propel the action, mm -hmm. it's the characters. You're listening to my interview with best-selling author Joy Fielding. Her new novel, Cul-de-Sac, is available wherever you buy fine books. If there was a book that influenced me at all, and it, it, it's so different, it, it, I can't even say really it, it, it was an influence, but I, but Frederick Bachman's book, Bear Town, which I just think is an extraordinary book, and one everybody should read, um, again, starts with a killing, and you don't know who, and you don't know like either the victim or the killer and that's sort of what focused me here when I when I had taken this idea like that I'd had for years and thought yes I can do that I I want to make a book where we're not we don't know and yes I I deliberately um make it so that it could be any one of these people because otherwise what's the mystery what's you know, <laughs> why, why you're reading uh so um but when when you when it is revealed who and why and and all the the questions it's it's the most satisfying you well, know? it has to be fair right it yes. has to be fair so yes. the reader could figure it out you can't just that's right in the last page go and billy did it and you, right. you know you, and you met billy on page two and he was never mentioned again it that's has right. to be fair well, that's the same. I, that's what I find like with Minette, somebody like Minette Walters, where I've read a book of hers and I don't know, like I hate trying, I never try and figure out who did what. And I actually don't even read a lot of mysteries or so, that kind of book. I'm not, to me, that's the least interesting part of the book uh, is like who did what. I really want to know much more why and who these people are and, and what, you know, all that stuff. So, um, you know, figuring it out, doesn't really like and I remember reading I can't remember which book of Minette Walters I read but I remember at around like I, I remember thinking oh it's got to be this one she's really you know again not that I was trying to figure it out but I thought oh it must be this one and then in fact about 50 pages from the end she introduced a whole new character and that was the person who did it and I thought no not fair <laughs> and uh so I I really want I'm very conscious of playing fair with the reader. I don't think you can change uh, the parameters or or um, you can't change things in midstream. You can't change the rules halfway yeah. through. Uh, you have to be following a certain logic. It may it may not be at all believable. Like I may be talking about, you know, uh, uh, an alien uh, UFO mm -hmm. landing in your backyard, you know, but if I believe the character 
say whose backyard the UFO lands in and that she goes into the into this alien ship. If you believe her, if you believe in her, you will follow her into that spaceship and you will believe what happens to her. So as long as I am faithful to that, then that's okay. That that's fair. That's the job. I mean, you have to keep people engaged from page to page. I know that Elmore Leonard uh, once told me I interviewed him and he just said, I write things. And then when I reread them, if my eye starts to skim over the page, that gets X'd out. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. He's he's uh, I remember actually I met Elmore Leonard once. I uh, we were both doing a radio show. We were both being interviewed, actually TV show. We were both being interviewed and uh the interviewer actually surprised me in the last couple of minutes by asking me to read the last couple of pages of one chapter. Right. And I started to read it and I could see we were running out of time. And, uh, and, and the, uh, the interviewer said, okay, we better stop. I said, wait, I've got two sentences left. So uh, I finished. And then when I walked off and Elmer Leonard was about to be interviewed. And as I was walking off, he said to me, you did that really well. That was really well constructed. And I just thought, oh, is it, you know, the master has spoken. And that yeah. so, uh, it was really nice validation. He told me once, uh, or I guess during the same interview, he said, uh, only use one exclamation mark per hundred thousand words. And, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and, so, sorry, go ahead. And that has stayed with me. This oh. interview is 15 years ago, probably. Oh, and that has oh, stayed with me ever since. I've used more than that, I'm afraid, although I, I probably have heard that same advice so that I really try and use them to a, a minimum. But every so often, you have to use one. I'll put an exclamation mark at the end of my conversation right there with Joy Fielding. What a pleasure to speak to her. She is the New York Times bestselling author of 29 novels. That is a huge body of work. The most recent one is called Cul-de-Sac. It's a psychological thriller in which a shooting lays bare the secrets harbored by five families in a sleepy suburban cul-de-sac. My next guest at age 15 was the youngest female artist to ever enter at number one on the UK singles chart with a song called Because We Want To. Her name is Billy Piper and since then she has appeared in the phenomenally popular BBC One sci-fi series Doctor Who in the role of Rose Tyler, starred in the horror series Penny Dreadful and currently stars in the provocative drama I Hate Susie. Her 2017 performance in the play Yerma at London's Young Vic earned her a total of six Best Actress awards for that one performance, including the Olivier Award, making her the only actor to have ever won six out of an available six Best Actress awards for a single performance. Her latest project is Rare Beasts. She wrote, directed, and stars in this anti-rom-com as a woman who settles for the wrong man. It's available on VOD right now. She joined me via Zoom from London. Here's Billy Piper. You started writing this movie uh, eight or nine years ago. Uh, tell me a little bit about how your relationship to it may have shifted over that time, or if it has. I'm only really just beginning to process the fact that it's had a theatrical release. And some of the love for it in the UK and some of the reviews for it have been so overwhelming, bearing in mind everything that led me to even writing that film and then getting that film up and running. It's it's just such a long process. So I'm in a place where I feel 
really moved by it. But also for myself, like, I look back at myself as, um, as the writer and I have compassion for myself then, which I didn't expect. And, and how so? I think it's, it's representative of me of a moment in my life where I thought, I'm not going to put up with anymore. Mm. Um, and I'm not going to lie anymore about how I feel. Um, the work, since, since choosing that um, route, both professionally and personally, I feel like I've made work that I am I'm, I'm really proud of and feel so true to me as a person. You don't really get to do that as an actor for hire. Um, it's very rare. It only really happens if a director brings you in really closely and you're part of it from the um, beginning. Which is it's probably only- much more rare than people think. Oh my god! Yeah, um, you know, not many uh, the directors hand over their work to the actor in a sort of collaborative way. Mm-hmm. It's quite, um, it's quite. I would say it's a more more of a theatre thing to do. I'd say the work that I've made in the last five years is is something that is notable to me for the first time. I feel really, really proud of. Let's talk a little bit about uh, what influences went into this film. As I was writing my review, I was thinking, well, it's a horror film of a sort. It is. <laughs> yeah, it is. I agree. <laughs> it's a horror it film is. of a sort. It is what I, <laughs> uh, I think I called in my review a non-rom-com. It is, yeah. it is, uh, a, a, it, it felt to me very much like a musical, like there might've been influences from musicals yeah, in there. There was a couple of dance numbers. So mm. tell me a little bit about taking all those little bits of clay and banging them together. Were, were, was all that moving around in your, in your head as you were putting this together? Yeah. Like none of it was conscious. Like I wasn't thinking, Oh, I'm going to really mix up these genres. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing that I was conscious of was that I was, I was, I was fully aware that I was telling a very bleak story and, but I didn't want to direct it as this sort of Mike Lee, bleak British, like domestic kitchen sink stuff, which I love and has really shaped me as an artist. You're listening to my interview with Billy Piper. Check out her film, Rare Beasts, wherever you legally download or rent movies. I'm really interested in making a very heavy story feel very entertaining um and and so for me that was my that was my quest with it it was how I can still because I feel like that's life I feel like really weird things happen this is a very simple example uh, but one that we will all know when we're having a really awful row with our partner or our kid or whatever, like a, a, let's say our partner, a blazer, right? And then some really schmaltzy song starts playing on the radio. You know, it's like though it's 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 like a it's an extension of that feeling where it's awful and hilarious. I was just dead set on on bringing that idea to life i am such a fan of musicals and dance um because i was dance trained as a dancer so 
I studied choreography. I watched musicals in my life. Um, I still want to be in a musical. I am passionate about them and, and, and just choreography alone that I, it all features in the, in the film, you know, it's restricted by budget, um, but it's, you can definitely feel it. You know, there's lots of music in the film. My partner wrote all the music and we work very closely from the ground up on it. But it's, it, 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 you're right, it is a horror as well because it's, it's horrific, the people behave horrifically. But my experience of life is that people behave appallingly in the face of rejection. You know, I guess this film will, it, it will only chime for you if you've, if you're cut from a similar cloth, I think, um, you know, some people have had a very nice time, apparently, growing up. So this this may not m- make any sense to you. Well, I found as I was watching that opening five minutes or however long that scene is, it's a date scene. Again, this doesn't give away anything about yeah. the movie that isn't in the trailer and that sort of thing. But it's a horrible date. It is an absolutely horrible date that goes from uh, the misogynist uh, suitor Pete uh, talking about the size of your teeth and his very ultra traditional ideas about what relationships would be. And I thought not knowing anything about the film going in that I thought, okay, well, this will be it. We'll meet Pete and he's the bottom of the barrel uh, and we'll never see him again. But of course we do see him again. So that's where it started to feel like a thriller to me almost is what's going to happen in this relationship because it starts off in such a such an odd, terrible place that it felt to me like um, I was always on the edge of my seat wanting to see what happened next. Yeah, um, well, I guess that's what abusive relationships look like, you know. Mm. Um, and what's so sad about um, codependent and abusive relationships um, and I think another thing that we m- must all know something about is possibly from having been in them ourselves or seeing your friends date someone who is just awful and you cannot believe they're not, they just keep going in with them. Like they keep getting deeper with them. And one of the saddest things about that um is is often that sometimes we like being around people that say the worst things we think about ourselves back at us I think that's something that if you have had challenges in your life and can become a sort of crutch um and there's you know depending on your experiences in life you can be attracted to chaos um and and you know people making awful decisions just really bad choices that's that's what real life looks like to me it doesn't look like the stuff that I see in films and I mean tv's definitely better but it was films I feel like I I don't know this just I haven't seen many good ones recently that feel like I uh, are reflecting my own experiences back at me so anyway look um, it may not be true for everyone. That was the great Billy Piper talking about her film Rare Beasts, which is on VOD right now. Uh, if you can't get enough of Billy Piper, check out her new series, I Hate Susie, as well, getting great reviews. 
My next guest, Rebecca Sober Slater, is the author of In the Land of Birdfishes. She was named one of CBC's 10 Writers to Watch. She is the director of the Cabot Trail Writers Festival and an editor of Brick, a literary journal. Her new novel, The Second History, explores the devastating effects of environmental catastrophe on human relationships. It is a story about the limits of our ability to know each other or understand the past and about the courage it takes to invent the world again for those we love. It's a very timely book. Let's meet Rebecca Silver Slater, who joins me via Zoom from Nova Scotia. You say that you have always been drawn to books that engage in some way with myth. Why is that? Was it a way to escape and just let your mind run free? I go back to the books that I loved as a child, and and uh, and they were always, you know, fairy tales and and mythologies and that sort of thing. And I and I think probably at that time it it, it was the escape of it. I mean, I I grew up in a small town and. Uh, um, I love my family, but I'm quite different from them. And I, I think that it was um, a way to access a world that uh, that felt uh, just that much more exciting and full of possibility than than one that that I sometimes wasn't sure where I fit in. And uh, but I think as as time has gone on, that it's also been maybe a bit more critical relationship to thinking about the myths that have shaped us and the ways sometimes they confuse us, um, whether it's, you know, within any given culture or society, but even when you tell your own life story to yourself or or uh, in a relationship, the way that all of the pieces of things that have happened to you, the um, whatever, whatever you've been through, the, the, you know, disappointments or the, um, uh, wonderful experiences they all become part of that story that we're just always telling to ourselves and, and a kind of uh, personal mythology and so I, I think that's really rich and interesting but also can kind of trip us up sometimes so I, I love to think about that. I'm interested in personal mythology because you know as you get further and further displaced from something that happened your story is about to change your memory fades or you remember the good stuff or you remember the bad stuff but you rarely remember it as a snapshot and it's always kind of fascinating to me as uh, I recount stories and then someone who was with me will hear it and say, no, it was the complete opposite. But you realize that perception is personal. You know, there is no cut and dried way of telling the truth, I don't think. Oh, it's it's so very true. And I, I think there's a way in which you kind of tell and retell your own story either to yourself or the other people in, in your life. And, and it takes on a life of its own. Mm -hmm. and, and within families that can happen that everyone kind of develops this collective memory of the way things went down. And it's not until and unless there's some kind of outside witness to, uh, to <laughs> counter it that uh, you just you just don't know at a certain point whether you're remembering a memory or, or the memory of telling that memory. So yeah. you talk about uh, being quite different from the rest of your family. And I just want to ask, is there other writers in your family? Or is there anyone involved in the arts? I think we grew up probably in fairly parallel kinds of places, small towns in Nova Scotia. Uh, and I wanted to be a writer and I knew one. He was the only person that I could point to and say, he wrote down words for a living. <laughs> Did you have that in your family or in your town somewhere? No, I mean, my, my, my parents, I, you know, I dedicated this book to them, be, uh, in part because of all the ways they did support me as, as a reader and as a writer. And they, 
they certainly filled my life with stories and books and I'm forever grateful for that. But, but it wasn't, um, they, they themselves are physicians. Uh, mm. And so their perspective on the world, I think as more kind of science people than, than, and very, very rational yeah. um, uh, analytical sort of people. Whereas I've always been um, a little bit more effusive, more emotional, more artsy, all those things. And, uh, and I think they, they would be overwhelmed by the, the <laughs> sometimes the vastness of emotional experience I was having, whether it was positive or otherwise. And uh, um, so I, I'm grateful for all the ways that they, they supported me through that. But I did sometimes feel like I was, I was um, uh, the only one of that sort in, in, in my house at that time. <laughs> You're listening to my interview with Rebecca Silver Slater, author of The Second History, available now wherever you buy fine books. Well, the new book, The Second History, uh, is set in a dystopian world, uh, but it very much is a human story. This isn't a story about the Hunger Games, and it's not whatever other dystopian stories that we've seen uh, over the last number of years. Uh, so tell me a little bit about the idea where you plucked that out of your emotional life and your your vivid imagination. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, you know, I think it did as much as um, it's, it is, as you say, it's, you know, it's set in the context of these kind of extraordinary circumstances in this sort of altered future world. Um, but I was, what the things I was interested in writing about were things not nearly as far from my own personal experience about, about marriage and a long-term relationship between two people and um, the ways uh, we love each other without ever being able to entirely know or understand each other and, and how we bridge that distance. Um, and then also, and especially more and more as I worked on the book about the experience of becoming a parent for the first time and um, all the ways that fear can kind of get woven into um, loving someone that deeply um, and how we find our way past that to love them also bravely and uh, and and what they need from us which is more i think than just our protection i think our children also need our courage and uh, our our faith in them ultimately to confront the world in whatever uh challenges it, it may present in, in in the years ahead so why set it in a dystopian backdrop yeah i think that um i mean part of it you know to trace back to your earlier question i think has to do with my love of mythology and i mm -hmm. i always enjoy um, situating sort of ordinary relationships and, and conflicts in the context of these heightened circumstances. Um, I just, I think it's almost just on an aesthetic level. I find it interesting and exciting. Um, and, but I also think that that context can reveal things that are, uh, are easier to overlook when, when the circumstances are ordinary and familiar. And I think that's why, you know, any, any novel, that, um, you know, I think this one is much more about those central relationships than the typical dystopia or, you know, apocalyptic novel um, than it is about the, the circumstances of the world. But I think those circumstances and the way the characters are responding to them are creating a portrait in some ways of, of our own time and how we're navigating um, fears around uh, the uncertain future for our, our climate and, and uh, and now with COVID and things relating, but also the things we've always uh, confronted and overcome when we when we do things like love another person. Well, I couldn't help but think that it it feels timely in the sense for some of the things you just said. 
you know, perhaps we're living in some sort of dystopia right now. We just don't, <laughs> we, we haven't accepted it or we won't admit it to ourselves. Yeah, well, I, I, won't, I won't try to make a final decision about whether we're living in an apocalypse mm -hmm. or not. <laughs> but I will say it was very interesting to, I mean, certainly um, uh, fears around uh, environmental disaster were very mm -hmm. much on my mind in the beginning of writing this book and, and, and throughout and, and in an ongoing way. But um, but as I was in the very late stages of editing it, as, as COVID seemed to just overnight uh, unsettle uh, so much of the, the stable world we took for granted, um, it it was so interesting to me, to me to discover how quickly things could change so radically. That was Rebecca Silver Slater. The name of her book is The Second History. It is great and it is available wherever fine books are sold. A big thanks to Rebecca. Also a big thanks to Joy Fielding. Find her book Cul-de-sac in bookstores and everywhere else right now. Also thanks to Billy Piper. Check out her new film Rare Beasts on VOD this weekend. As always, my biggest thanks though goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Talk to you soon.